0: In 2016, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released its Guideline for Prescribing Opioids for Chronic Pain. Although the medical and health policy communities have largely embraced the guideline's recommendations, some policies and practices purportedly derived from the guideline have been inconsistent with and often go beyond the recommendations. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Deborah Dowell. Chief Medical Officer of the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Dowell has co-authored a prospective article about appropriate implementation of the CDC guideline. Dr. Dowell, you were the lead author of the Opioid Prescribing Guideline. Can you tell us a bit about the recommendations in the guideline and how they were developed?
1: Sure. So, three principles underlie the Guidelines 12 recommendations. First, opioids are not first-line treatment for chronic pain. There are other more effective and safer options for most patients. Second, if prescribing opioids, use the lowest effective dosage and use caution when you increase the dose. And third, carefully monitor all patients when they're prescribed opioids. And this includes recommendations such as check the prescription drug monitoring program data offer naloxone for patients at higher risk, and when you uncover opioid use disorder, offer medication-assisted treatment. The guidelines were developed based on a systematic evidence review using the best available evidence, and the evidence that was available was interpreted by experts, including experts in systematic review methodology, pain treatment, primary care, and We also had input from patients, professional organizations, and others.
0: And then after the release of the guidelines, did the CDC take steps to facilitate the uptake?
1: We did. Since the guidelines release, we have worked hard to promote appropriate implementation through a number of channels. One, communication and translation materials and tools, which are available on our website. And this included things like pocket guides. We worked with Atul Gawande and his area of need labs to develop a one-page checklist summarizing the guideline. We have a mobile app and online training with mobile motivational interviewing components and other fact sheets on topics like non-opioid treatments for pain. We also took steps to educate providers through presentations and workshops at national meetings and webinars. And we worked and are working to integrate recommendations into medical education working with the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education and the Association of American Medical Colleges. In addition, we engaged health systems leaders, payers, and others regarding appropriate implementation. For example, we worked with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services on their annual Medicare call letter to prescription drug plan sponsors to integrate guidance that the guidelines' recommendation statement on increasing opioid dosages applied specifically to preventing dose escalation among patients not already receiving long-term high-dose opioid therapy. And the different guidance was provided for patients already receiving high-dose opioid therapy. We also worked with pairs to try to improve coverage for non-pharmacological pain treatments and to remove barriers to appropriate implementation, such as removing prior authorization for medication-assisted treatment for opioid use disorder.
0: You say in your article that despite all of that The guideline has at times been wrongly implemented, misapplied in ways that are likely to result in harm to patients. Why do you think there's a tendency to implement policies and practices that go beyond the guideline recommendations?
1: I think for one thing, it's easier to develop simple policies, for example, no prescriptions above 90 morphine milligram equivalents, than more nuanced policies that factor in length of opioid treatment, and also at the individual clinician level. Implementing recommendations appropriately takes time and effort. We named the perspective piece No Shortcuts to Safer Opioid Prescribing, and that was to convey both that safer opioid prescribing takes time and effort and stopping opioids, if that's the appropriate course, takes time and effort. We recommended in our guideline, and we are recommending that clinicians engage with patients and negotiate the safest and most effective pain management plan. And often this can seem more difficult than either just providing opioids freely or at the other extreme, refusing to prescribe opioids altogether. And we've heard reports that some clinicians have found it easier to just stop prescribing opioids and have even pointed to the guideline as justification to abruptly discontinue prescribing opioids, even though the guideline does not support this practice.
0: What kind of support would help clinicians such as those who are universally stopping prescribing? to continue to provide necessary care and to thoughtfully interpret the guideline?
1: I think one thing is more nuanced policies that allow clinicians to take into account the individual circumstances for which they're treating their patients. Team-based care is also very important. Sometimes it can be hard for one person to negotiate with the patient and provide education on overdose prevention and follow up on referrals. So where possible, dividing these tasks among team members is helpful, and I think that health systems that can facilitate this for their prescribers can help with appropriate implementation. CDC, as I mentioned, continues to provide support for clinicians in interpreting and applying the guideline. And we offer a suite of tools on our website, including pocket guides, information about non-opioid treatments for pain, As well as a mobile app and online training with tips for implementing the guideline in a primary care practice and some training on overcoming challenges. We also offer free continuing medical education credits.
0: Finally, you write in your article that appropriate implementation of the guideline would include maximizing the use of physical, psychological, and multimodal pain treatments. Are there efforts underway to generate additional evidence on those non opioid approaches to treating pain and to? ensure that they're available?
1: Yes, there are. CDC helped fund a systematic review by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, AHRQ, on non-invasive non-pharmacologic treatment for chronic pain, and that was released in 2018. And this review found that exercise, multidisciplinary rehabilitation, acupuncture, cognitive behavioral therapy, and mind-body practices were most consistently associated with durable improvements in pain and function for chronic pain conditions. In addition to that research, CDC has collaborated on research for on what is covered in terms of non-pharmacologic approaches to acute or chronic low back pain. And we found that physical therapy was commonly covered, but other effective therapies such as psychological interventions either were not covered or they're leadership of the plans lacked information about coverage of these interventions, so there's a lot of room for improvement there. In addition, this research found that utilization management tools such as prior authorization, which could be barriers to care, were common. And we've conducted other research on non-opioid pharmacologic treatments for low back pain and found that among commercial Medicare and Medicaid plans, non-opioid treatments were subject very frequently, about a quarter to a third of the plant of the products across the pairs were subject to quantity limits, and also commonly subject to prior authorization. Since the guideline came out, another trial comparing an opioid-based approach to chronic back pain and hip or knee osteoarthritis pain with a non-opioid approach over a year has found that the non-opioid approach is more effective. And that adds to what we found in the guideline. In our systematic review, we found that most trials for opioids were six weeks or less. And it was also unusual to have trials of other treatment that lasted more than a few months. I think a lot of times, clinicians feel like if nothing else works, we can always go to opioids and We refer to them as powerful painkillers, but we're finding that that's not always necessarily the case, especially with long-term treatment. Other treatments are likely to be more effective.
0: Thank you, Dr. Dow.